Today we are continuing in our study through the book of Judges, and we, are, we have come to Judges chapter 19, so please turn there with me in your Bibles, Judges chapter 19. This is one of those days where if we weren't committed to going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we'd be much more comfortable uh, to skip this section altogether, without a doubt. But that's one reason why we believe in preaching through entire books of the Bible, as opposed to just doing you know, nothing but topical series here and there. All of Scripture is given by God. All of Scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof, for building up the body of Christ. Even passages that are confusing and passages that are horrifying, like the one before us today. I do want to give a fair warning this morning about the nature of this passage. It's brutal. It's graphic. It's painful to hear. It would definitely be rated R if it were a movie. If you've been the victim of sexual violence or physical violence, some of this might be very hard to hear. And I'd be glad to talk and pray with you afterward if there's any way that I can encourage you. These are very dark, dark words here in this chapter. But Judges chapter 19 is our text, and I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 28 and pick up from there next week. But for the sake of context, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Judges chapter 19, brethren, remember, this is God's word. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, the father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward the evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws draws to its close. Lodge here, and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived at Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, for 
who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Amen. Brethren, this is God's word. Let's bow again and ask for His blessing to be upon the proclamation of it. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that You would help us make sense of the wicked depravity that we read of here. We pray that You would help us to find hope in these words, that You would reveal to us Jesus Christ from this text, that we may see how He came to put an end to such horror. Father, we ask that You would do this according to Your mercy. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, clearly, this is one of the most shocking and grotesque episodes 
and the entire Scriptures. This whole last section of Judges, verses, uh, chapters 19 through 21, begins and ends with rape. And sandwiched in between this is this horrible decapitation in a bloody civil war in Israel. You know, this is not the kind of thing that we expect to read of in the Bible, is it? More than this, this is not the kind of thing that we expect among the people of God. This is perhaps the most shocking aspect of this all. These things take place not among pagans, not among Gentiles who do not know God. These things take place among the people who have God's law. The same Ten Commandments that we have. These take place among people who had God's revelation and His promises and the true worship of God as well. And yet, the level of depravity here is perhaps the worst that we see in all of Scripture. What's going on with this? Without a doubt, right away, I believe this ought to serve as a very serious warning to us all. You know, how easy is it for us to, to read this and, and to walk away just shaking our heads at the sinners here? Oh, we're much more sophisticated, aren't we? This would never happen in our day. This would never happen in our society. Modern enlightenment and the progress that man has made makes us incapable of such evil. And brethren, ultimately at the end of the day, this misses the entire point if we look at it this way. Why is it? What is the reason why Israel falls into such wickedness here? Verse 1, because they had no king. In chapter 25, verse 21, because in that day everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The problem in this chapter is us. Ultimately, the innate sinful depravity that knows no bounds when it's not properly restrained. Here I can't help but recall the famous incident with uh, English writer G.K. Chesterton. If you'll recall, uh, when a newspaper, a local newspaper, posed the question, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton repeatedly wrote and responded with a letter that said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the message that we ought to see right here in this last episode in Judges. That's the, episode, uh, the message that is so relevant to us today as well. We live in a world where freedom and autonomy are perhaps valued more than anything else in our society. But that's the lie. Because that's the problem. The problem in this passage is humanity. And the problem in this passage is not just human sinfulness, but it's human sinfulness manifesting itself in human autonomy. The lie of believing that I can call my own shots, that I can do my own thing, that I am dependent, independent, and can live and am free to walk according to however it is that I desire to walk. And who are you to judge? 
what we see in this is that Israel, because God has left them to themselves, has spiraled out of control. And now they're on the brink of almost total self-destruction. And so the answer to this problem is that they, and subsequently we as well, we need someone else to save us from ourselves. We need someone from the outside to come and rescue us. Otherwise, the same type of religious and moral chaos will descend upon us as well, leading to the same judgment as well. So, brethren, this morning I want you to see that this chapter is a chapter that shows us the depths of human depravity and the evil that we are all capable of outside the grace and mercy of God. And yet, at the same time, this chapter also shows us, in fact, it screams to us of the grace and mercy of God as well. For even despite this horrific evil, even though God does bring judgment upon them, He does not cast off His people forever. He continues to send them deliverers. He continues to show patience and mercy and forgiveness towards Israel. And He does that to us as well in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. That's the message today. The big picture of human sinfulness on display. But here I want to narrow things as we dive into the details a little bit. I want to narrow things a little bit more. Um, essentially, this chapter can be broken up into two stories. So we're going to have two points today to guide us through this. But most specifically, I want you to see how this entire story in the last three chapters of this book revolves around women. And it revolves around the abuse of women specifically. I mentioned before, this is a story that begins and ends with rape. And so today I want us to consider how specifically the abuse of women is what reveals the depravity the depth of depravity in Israel. And so the first thing we see here from verses 1 through 10 is this. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the abuse of women will sure to follow. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the abuse of women is sure to follow. A few weeks ago I argued from the chapters uh, 17 and 18, that a failure in worship leads to a failure in everything. That was kind of the overarching uh, thesis of um, those chapters. But I think really in the same sense, in the, in the moral realm, we can say something similar. The abuse of women leads to an abuse of everything. Maybe put it this way, when abuse of women is prevalent and tolerated, morality and social order will also unravel. I think that's what we see here. Notice how the chapter starts. In verse 1, we are reminded that chaos is reigning because there is no king. But we're introduced here to, again, a wandering Levite. Just like we saw in the previous two chapters, here we have a member of the priestly tribe. One of those who was commissioned and called uh, to teach the word of God, the law of God, and to regulate worship in Israel. Here is another Levite 
again, as we saw before, who spurns God's inheritance and is wandering around looking for whatever is right in his own eyes. While the previous chapter, this type of wandering Levite, led to idolatry in the land, here we're going to see it leads to essentially all-out civil war. But in verse 1, we're told that this Levite took to himself a concubine. A concubine was essentially a sexual partner without the rights of a wife. In fact, with this language here that he took to himself, the clear implication is that she had no choice in the matter. Later on, the author actually uh, refers to the Levite as her master. This makes it clear that essentially she was nothing more than a slave, a sex slave at that. So right away in this chapter, it begins with the sexual exploitation of women, just like the entire book will end with as well. But what's so shocking about this is that who is the guilty party in this? A Canaanite? A Gentile? A worthless fellow? No, a Levite. One of the men of God in that society. So right away we ought to say, whoa, something's not right here. This is, is, is bad. Dark things are, are going to come from this, ultimately. Levites were not supposed to be wandering around away from their inheritance. They were not supposed to be taking concubines for themselves. But then the tension of the narrative is kind of introduced to us in verse 2. What happens? His concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house. <clears throat> At first glance, it may uh, sound as though perhaps this concubine as well isn't a woman of much character. Yeah, maybe the Levite wasn't much uh, by the way of uprightness, but you know, perhaps she shares some of the the culpability and the blame of what happens in this story because she was unfaithful to him. But really, I, I, I don't think this is the case at all. And I think this is very important for understanding the thrust of the narrative. Think about what happens here. She is unfaithful, yet she runs to her father's house. It doesn't really make sense. In that society, if she was unfaithful, her father would be the last one uh, who would be on her side because you know that's how you bring great shame upon the family name. Furthermore, it's just odd that in this sense the Levite goes to speak kindly to her. The implication being he is trying to win her back. That too doesn't make sense if she is at fault here, if she's been unfaithful. So in this respect, I think it's important to read the text this way, that she was unfaithful for him. That's one possible way of interpreting the Hebrew construction here. What this means is that the Levite was the one, I believe, who was prostituting her out to other men. And she got tired of it. She got fed up and she fled and ran away from him. That's what seems to best fit the rest of the narrative here. Because she is portrayed as the victim in this story, while the Levite and, of course, the men of Gibeah are the ones that are the selfish, hedonistic ones. In fact, throughout this entire episode, all the women in this story are, are innocent. All throughout, they are the ones that fall victim to the depravity of men when men do what is right in their own eyes. 
So with this, the Levite then goes to retrieve her, to speak kindly to her. And he's enthusiastically welcomed by her father. And if you'll notice, the narrative really slows down in uh, verses 3 through 9. There's this intentional focus on the over-the-top hospitality in this, right? The concubine's father just, just lavishes upon him. In fact, we read in verse 3 that the, the, the father meets the Levite with great joy. This is emphasized. It's kind of sad and odd given how the Levite had treated his daughter. Then there's this repeated refrain that they ate and drank together, this picture of luxury, this, this lavish living like a king. They're, they're kind of living it up in a sense. Even when the Levite tries to go home, in verse 5, the father insists, stay longer. And then again in verse 7 and 8 and 9, he tries to prevail upon him to stay. Well, what's going on with this? Why the lavish hospitality, we might ask? And why is the, the author of Judges going into detail about this? Is this really important to the story? Well, one answer to this um, is that the lavish hospitality of the father stands in sharp contrast to the lack of hospitality we see in Gibeah here in just a moment. Right? And it also sets the stage for the reason why they left late and they're scrambling to find a place to, to stay before the sun goes down. But more specifically, I want you to see who is it that is eating and drinking. Verse 6 makes that clear, the two of them. The father and the Levite. Who is it that is included in the discussions on whether to stay or whether to go? Again, just the father and the Levite. Who is it then that is never mentioned, never consulted, never heard of? The woman. She's absent through everything here. The glaring implication is that there's no concern for her whatsoever. And the purpose of this lavish hospitality is that the father loves this guest, but he doesn't even care for his own daughter. Why is that? Well, just think back to chapter 17. Remember, Micah, when he met a Levite, tried to detain him and ultimately did detain him. Why did he do so? We get that closing refrain, Micah saying, Ah, now I've got a Levite. The Lord is going to show me prosperity. Levites were thought to, be, to, to bring God's prosperity because they were the priestly tribe. What does this show us then? The father doesn't really care about the daughter. He's acting like Micah. He wants the priest to stay in his home thinking that maybe then God will prosper him. All of this then serves to illustrate that the woman is just a pawn in the game. She's a piece of property that two men... Even her own father were using to try to get what they wanted. And this tells us all we need to know about the state of Israel at the time. When the women of society are abused, especially among the leaders of the land, everything is on the verge of implosion. Because men, when they do what is right in their own eyes, it's always the weakest who suffer the most. 
In fact, as we'll see here in a moment, how we treat women goes a long way towards revealing what's truly in our hearts. And so, this first opening scene should kind of set the stage and sound the alarm for what's going to happen next. So secondly then, we get to the main drama in verses 11 through 28. The second point in this essentially is, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it's the weak who are sacrificed to preserve the strong. It's the weak who are sacrificed to preserve the strong. In verse 10, the Levite finally gets fed up with a concubine's daughter. Perhaps he was kind of, you know, he kind of got wind of the idea, oh, this guy is trying to retain me because he wants something. Uh, Clearly, though, there's kind of a, a note of exasperation here, and he gets up to leave even though it's late in the day, meaning that they're not going to get very far. First, then, they come to Jebus, which is in, uh, excuse me, which is Jerusalem, the author reminds us of. But it's called Jebus because at that time it was still in Canaanite hands. We saw that back in chapter 1. And that ends up serving as kind of part of the irony of the story. And they're near Jebus and the Levite says, whoa, we can't stay in a Canaanite city, right? Who knows what sort of evil might befall us if we do that. And yet, clearly, as things play out, they probably would have been much better off in a Canaanite city. But then they come to the town of Gibeah, which was a Benjamite city. Here they were supposedly among friends. They were among brothers, as the text reminds us. They were among fellow Israelites. Right away, though, we see that something's not right. Verse 15, they sit in the square, and nobody shows them hospitality. No one takes them in. This was a a huge no-no in that day, uh, in that culture, especially among Israelites. Failure to show hospitality was one of the biggest cultural faux pas that you could commit. But not only this, the law of God actually commanded Israel to show hospitality to sojourners, and it also commanded Israel to show hospitality specifically to Levites. So really the picture here is kind of like the old Western, you know, the hero walks into town and everyone suddenly slams their doors and windows, right? You could cut the tension with a knife. There's a dark, foreboding secret to this town. Things aren't right. But then the old man approaches. The author takes pains to remind us that this man was not um, a native of the town. He was not a Benjaminite. He was from Ephraim. Right? The one who finally shows him hospitality uh, was not really a native here in this wicked city. But he comes to them and he asks them, where are you coming from and where are you going? It's noteworthy that the author kind of shows how the Levite responds with something a little bit less than the truth. He says in verse 18, I'm going to the house of the Lord. We know, of course, that he's not going in that direction at all. Levite is a pretty filthy character. He's a liar, but perhaps more than this, he, he, he seems to hide behind his false piety, maybe because he's afraid of what he's already seen in the town. Whatever fear, though, he might have had is kind of confirmed, though, for us in verse 20. We get the words from the old man, Peace to you, I will care for your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. 
What do you mean? It's an Israelite city. This is God's country. This is not Canaan. We're practically family. And you're a priest in Israel. The priest of all people should never fear spending the night in an Israelite city. This is just baffling. This would have been shocking to the original audience. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when the locals will tell you something like, don't ever drive to this part of the city at night. Right? His, his words, don't spend the night in the square. Kind of haunting. Foreshadow what's to come from there. This is not right. This is way, way out of place. So the old man brings them in, verse 22. Some of the worthless fellows, the sons of Belial, literally. Some of the worthless fellows in the city surround the house and start beating on the door. These men demand that the old man hand over the Levite, quote, so that we may know him. Of course, this term's, term refers to sexual intercourse. In this, in this context, is referring to acts of homosexuality. Again, in a long list of surprises and shocks, this is perhaps the most flabbergasting of all. To an Israelite? Homosexuality is clearly condemned in God's law. It is deserving of the death penalty. And it was a common practice among the pagan nations around them, among whom they were called to be separate from. But not only this, all of these details here are a clear parallel to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Some of the details are Exactly the same. The men of the city surround the house and they pound on the door and they demand that they give over the sojourner. Just think of the place and role of the uh, the story of Sodom in Israelite history. It was the epitome of wickedness and human depravity in the Old Testament. It was famous in Israel for, for being the most grotesque example of depravity and the most extreme illustration of God's wrath and judgment against sin. No wonder then that these actions end up sparking a civil war in Israel. No wonder then the rest of the tribes in Israel turn against Benjamin and almost entirely wipe them out in the next two chapters. Gibeah is portrayed here as a new Sodom, complete with a lack of hospitality, a lust for rape, and not just rape, but homosexuality as well, a sin that is particularly devious because it goes against nature itself. And that's why the man then, excuse me, the old man, uh, offers the two women to try to appease the mob. You know, rape is a horrible sin, but even worse than that is homosexual rape. And yet at the same time, Can't we also say that the actions of the two men in this story are pretty despicable as well? Verse 24, the old man does something sick. He offers his own virgin daughter and the concubine to the mob. And the key phrase in this is when he tells them, violate them and do whatever it seems good to you. Do whatever it is that is right in your own eyes. This is the divine commentary on the morality that's going on here. 
But what a model host, huh? Right? He's like Jephthah that we saw a few chapters ago where he sacrificed his own daughter, his own virgin daughter, uh, to fulfill a, 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 a vow. In the same sense, here's someone who's willing to sacrifice his own virgin daughter because of a perverted sense of moral obligation. But if he's bad, he's about to be one-upped here by the Levite. The mom wouldn't listen, so the Levite then takes things into his own hands. We read in verse 25 that he suddenly seizes his concubine and he made her go out to them and they knew and abused her all night. Desperate and fearful with a callousness that only communicates that he clearly only thought of her as his property. Entirely expendable, less than human. The Levite sacrifices her to the mob in order to save himself. This is just tremendous moral depravity among every character in this story, with the exception of the concubine. And even this, this isn't even the worst of it, for after the woman is abused all night, she fell down at the doorstep until morning. In verse 27, the Levite rises and and goes on his way. Apparently he slept well, right? He seems to get up, not really with a thought of what happened to her, but with this intention, uh, i got to get back to business, i got to get home. She means nothing to him. He only notices her because he almost trips over her when he's leaving, while he's planning to go on his way. We're given this heartbreaking, graphic depiction here of she died or she laid there with her hands on the threshold reaching for help, longing for someone to care. And how does he respond even to this, to this desperation? Oh, how are you doing? What do you need? What can I do to help? I'm sorry for what I did to you. (laughs) None of that. No. Just a cruel and heartless get up. We got to get going. Get up. No remorse, no compassion, no care for her at all. He just speaks to her like she's an animal. It's as if he doesn't even see her as human, which becomes even more obvious in the next episode as he dismembers her. A final, ultimate dehumanization of her, even in death, because he just saw her as personal property, expendable. Brethren, what we're to see here is that yes, the sin of Gibeah is tremendous. And God brings judgment upon them for their actions as we see in the next two chapters. But even though Gibeah had the greater sin, I want to argue that the Levite is part of the problem as well. The concubine is the victim She's both the object of Gibeah's uncontrollable lust to do whatever is right in their own eyes, but she's also the sacrificial lamb offered up so that the men of the house could escape. And all of this is a result of a nation that have gone completely entirely off the rails. 
When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the strong are quick to sacrifice the weak so that they might get what they really want. And it's only painful and lasting judgment that awaits such depravity. Well, at this point, I want us to bring all this to a conclusion and try to draw a few things from this. Specifically on, what does this tell us about the root of Israel's problem? I argued before that the Levites are the focus of this last epilogue. Throughout this entire epilogue, the author is pointing the finger at them as having the most prominent hand in the downfall of Israel. That's why I focused mostly on him today instead of on the sin of Gibeah, which we'll consider next week. But the author is indicting the Levites. They're pointing to them as the root of Israel's problem. But more specifically, I want to ask this morning, I want to answer, why is it that the treatment of women reveals the root of Israel's problems? How can I say that? What does that have to do with things? Well, of course, as I've already mentioned, there's a few obvious answers to that. Women are the weaker vessel, physically speaking, that is. And when men operate lawlessly, women will always be the victim. A society that does not value women reveals that lawlessness is in play and they are ripe for moral chaos and judgment. But more than that, to understand what's going on here, we also have to look closer at the place of women in Israel and the place of women in Christianity as a whole. Recall that Israel is and was supposed to be a son of God, another Adam. God's redemption of them in the Exodus was for the purpose of remaking them in his image so that they might be a light to the nations around them. Israel is a second Adam, a son of God called in order to image God. So we must ask then, how is it that God then treats women. Women, just like men, are made in the image of God. Women hold equal intrinsic value. They're not property. They're not second-class citizens. They're not footstools to boost men. I'm reminded here of Matthew Henry's famous words where he says, Women, woman, was made out of a rib from Adam's side not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. But of course, in the fall, the first mistreatment of women happened. Adam failed in his duty to guard and protect his bride. And doing so plunged the entire human race into sin. The rule and reign of sin then and the mistreatment of women always goes hand in hand. Israel's mistreatment of women is but a replay here of the fall. And it's showing us that sin still reigns. And that is their ultimate problem that has not been addressed. 
They needed a king and a judge, someone to deliver them from themselves. But going even further than this, to understand the role of women in this story, we almost also have to look forward. We have to look forward to the joining of, of Christ and the church and how marriage is a picture of that union. And this is where the story ultimately reveals the depravity in Israel. Perhaps you caught on earlier. But the Levite sacrifices the woman in order that he might be saved. But Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the woman, the church, his bride, so that we might be saved. They are totally perverting the image of God and the image of Jesus Christ in their abuse of women. The Levite as well threw the woman to the wrathful mob so that they could do with her as they pleased, while Christ Himself, what did He do? He gave Himself to the mob that was shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And He suffered their wrath, and more importantly, the wrath of God for our sin because of His great love for us. The bride... His bride, the whore, the unfaithful wife, all of us who have gone astray in our sinfulness. That's what we see. Instead of walking after the image of their Creator, Israel abused women and they looked out for their own personal gain at the expense of women. And so the further they move towards the abuse of women is the further away they move from the true knowledge of God and the intimacy of communion with Him. And showing us that the situation in Israel is desperate and something has to change. And so, brethren, the same is true in our day as well. How men view and treat women has a direct correlation to how much the gospel has penetrated their hearts. Objectifying women, using them, lusting after them, trampling them, abusing them, doing to them whatever is right in their own eyes according to the dictates of their own passions, this is evidence of depravity and of someone who does not know God. Christ is the one who set the example for us. He gave Himself for His bride. To love her, to cherish her, to cleanse her, to protect her, to serve her, to honor her. And this is the pattern by which we are called to walk. And this is the necessary implication of someone who has come to the knowledge of the truth. So at the end of the day then, Israel is a picture of us and who we are by nature. Doing what is right in our own eyes. Burning with unnatural perverted lusts. Deserving of nothing but wrath and punishment. But this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in as well. Israel is not cast off forever. Even despite this horrible sin, God continues to show them and give them deliverers with that ultimate deliverer coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ Jesus not only gave Himself to 
the sinful mob so that they could crucify him, but he gave himself for the sinful mob because of his great love for that sinful mob. You and me, as he suffered on the cross the sin and punishment that we deserve in our place. This is the message of the gospel here in Judges chapter 19. And we must stop and ask, what kind of amazing love is this? That Christ gives himself out of love for the mob that has surrounded this old man's house. For the Levite and the old man who are so willing to trample over women to get what they want. What kind of love is this? What kind of unfathomable mercy is this? What kind of God is this that shows such mercy and grace towards sinners? This is the God that has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. This is the God who in Christ was slain for sinners. This is the God who is king and ruler over His people. The faithful husband to the bride who who has come to rescue us from ourselves. And to save us from the depravity that is destroying us within. May God give us the grace then to see our Savior in this passage. To place our trust, to place our hope, to place all of our confidence and contentment in Him and Him alone. Amen. Let's pray.